This Wellness Couch podcast is brought to you by The Wellness Breakthrough. Three days and two nights with nine of your favourites from The Wellness Couch, all gathering together in Melbourne for one incredible event. We can't wait to see you there. Go to www.thewellnesscouch.com for details. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith and Kim Morrison. up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Kim Morrison. It just doesn't sound right, does no, it? No, it doesn't. It just doesn't. Where's Karen? Yeah. Oh, and I'm Cindy O'Meara. Now, where's Karen? Well, tonight, you know, as you can all probably appreciate, the busier we're all getting, the harder it is to coordinate the three of us all together. And all our podcasts are done Life, as in we're all in the same room. Mm. So tonight, Karen is doing a heck of a lot of recording for Karen's Couch, and Cindy's off to the UK, and I'm in the middle of my program and launching training programs and traveling down to Brisbane quite a bit, and you know, running the home. So we just thought, (laughs) well, we've been asked a couple of questions lately all around paleo. And we thought this is a perfect topic to have without the vegan. So, <laughs> so another talk we did was on pregnancy and childbirth without the mother. And now we're doing one on on paleo. So I thought, Without the meat eater. Without the meat eater. <laughs> and I thought it would be a great opportunity to really clear up some things around paleo and primal. And because I have the food expert right in front of me in my life... I figured it's a great chance for me to maybe ask the questions on behalf of you guys on what our food expert thinks paleo is. So, Cindy, is it, my first question to you is, is this a fad or do you think it's for real? Wow, that's that's probably a really good question. Is it a fad or was it a fad? When you think about it, it got us to probably about 11,000 years ago, the paleo diet. And the paleo diet... Uh, you know, we don't know exactly. We can only guess. And if we have a look at our hunter-gatherers around the world that we still see, we actually see that they eat what they eat and how they eat now. So, for instance, the Inuits eat nothing but fat and organ meats. They actually don't eat the muscle. They eat the organ meats. So fat and organ meat. If we go to the Maasai, they eat blood, milk and meat. So very high protein. So first of all, the Inuits are high fat. The Maasai are very high protein. And then if we go to the tribes of Papua New Guinea and see what they eat, and we, you know, they were still 70s and 80s. They're still not seeing white man. So there is information about those tribes, and they ate mainly carbs, tubers. They ate very little meat, and they ate mostly um, carbs and tubers. So... To say what a paleo diet is, is to say, well, what region of the world do we want to look at? Mm. So for me, paleo is about eating real foods. It's about going back to the basics of what we used to eat. And if I was to look at what paleo is seen as today, it's seen as meat, um, fish, chicken, those types of foods, wild meats, but they must be grass-fed and wild. They're greens, few berries, not a lot of fruit, but a few berries, nuts and seeds, eggs, 
basically that and herbs and and if there were spices there i guess spices but that's it you know that's that's the paleo so they remove dairy legumes and grains basically from the diet as well as if we're looking at the Western diet, they remove all processed, all refined foods, no soft drinks, um, no alcohol if you're going to be strict paleo. So it's about living that hunter-gatherer lifestyle that is seen as the, the maybe the average hunter-gatherer lifestyle. But I've never seen an average hunter-gatherer lifestyle. In my, my whole, you know, 30 years ago, I, I did cultural anthropology and there was never the same lifestyle, no matter where you went in the world. it was They always changed just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there was a thought that the hunter-gatherer may have domesticated the goat and drunk the milk. And if the hunter-gatherer killed an animal that had been, you know, had a, a baby with it, they probably drank the milk from the udder or use the udder because they never, ever let anything go waste. Mm-hmm. So there is the thought that the hunter-gatherer may have eaten dairy whether it be goat camel or whatever the mammal was out there um buffalo buffalo yeah it could have been anything that they were were eating so there there is that presumption and if we just go a little bit further there's the blood type diet so the blood type diet says that the hunter gatherer were the blood type o's they were the ones that ate meat and greens and berries and fruit and nuts and seeds and eggs so that's your blood type o then, due to agriculture, and we're actually going to talk about the, the pivotal point in our history and how we changed, and that was the agricultural revolution. So the blood type A's were, yeah, which is Kimmy, mm-hmm. and you like, you mm-hmm. don't mind poultry and you don't mind fish, but you cannot stand red meat, can mm-hmm. you? Whereas me, as, a, as a, you know, a meat eater, I love red meat. And you're an O-type? I'm a blood type O. Mm. So blood type O's were the meat eaters, blood type A's were the more vegetarian. So it was the beginning of the agricultural revolution. And when you have a look at the sugar that distinguishes a blood group A from an O, so O means there's no sugar off it. A means there's a sugar off it. And it's very much the sugar of grain. Wow. And then when keep going on, we became herders. So after the agricultural revolution was the belief that we became herders, and that was the beginning of blood group B. Oh. Yeah, and blood group B has the, the sugar off it for milk. I think it's galactose is off it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really going into the backs of my knowledge about this, but I'm pretty sure the sugar was galactose, and that's how we figure out what is blood group A, what is blood group B. And then the belief is that blood group A and B did not come about until about 2,000 years ago, and they believe it was around the time of Jesus Christ when agriculturalists met herders and they mated and A and B came about. And if you have a look at these four blood groups, you realise that blood group O is the biggest blood group. Mm. Blood group A is next, B next, and AB is a very, very minor part of the the, um, population. Well, it's interesting because we just had all our bloods done and we went through Dr. Carlos Sanchez and um, all of us went up, the kids included, and it was an amazing journey actually because he really, he's all about food and um, he's a as you know, a, a GP, but he's a holistic medical integrative doctor who is fascinating. And one of the questions I said to him is, did it do your head in <laughs> having to learn all the medical jargon and all the thing around drugs and all of that? And he's Spanish. And he just looked at me and smiled and said, no, not at all. 
Um, I didn't agree with it. I didn't particularly like what I heard in a lot of it. But the great thing is all my clients come in here on these drugs and medications and doing all that. And he goes, if I didn't have that knowledge, I wouldn't know what they are or what they're about or what to do with them. So I then am able to give them an influence with my knowledge on how to counteract those problems with the medical world. So I thought that was a really good way of looking at it because for people that want to study nutrition or want to get into understanding the medical world a bit more or perhaps that's a passion they have but they're disillusioned by the Mm. institutionalisation of it, I figured that that's a nice way to look at it. Learn it so you can understand what they're all saying out there and then once you've got the qualification and that those letters behind your name, you're going to have the authority and credibility to then change it. So I thought that was interesting. Mm. But one of the things we noticed is the children had asked me what their blood groups were. And I'd forgotten, even though I'd got them when they were born. And I'm an A, Danny's a B, and both our children are ABs. Yeah, yeah. How amazing. And he said, so yeah, it's very likely. In fact... We didn't know what Danny's type was. He couldn't remember what he was. But he said the fact that both our children were ABs, he had to be an AB. He had to be uh, a B. Sorry, a B. A B, yeah. yeah. So mm. that was really interesting. And then you saying that, Danny definitely, you know, is more prone. He, he loves his dairy and he loves all that kind of food. I do tend to like, uh, not so much the grains now, but probably would have been pretty big mm. grain eater and mm. certainly not a big but he loves his meat but bees, bees. did like meat but okay. bee bee were more likely to eat old meat so when cured you mean or no old meat being mutton as opposed to lamb oh. so they would consume foods that were older because they would wait until all the milk was you know the, the cow was no longer able to deliver a baby and they could have dairy so they were more likely to have an older meat but yeah they were meat eaters as well the bees the a's were less likely to be meat eaters because they were eating more grains and legumes and the agricultural revolution had started but the herding society they believe happened i think in the last ice age i'm pretty sure and as a result they needed those animals to give them dairy well look at the maasai they do eat the meat but they also drink their blood And they drink their milk and their dairy. Mm. So can I ask you a question then, um, as we develop and and learn through this and what your thoughts are, the difference then between primal and paleo, what's the variance there? The the understanding I've had is that primal is fairly much the hunter-gatherer, but they adapted to some things like Mm. dairy. Mm. And grain. And grain. Okay. So that's kind of more like a a more advanced hunter-gatherer. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And probably, you know, later on. See, this is what... I look at, I I see. So we were mainly hunter-gatherers, but with variations in how we ate. And then the the belief is around 11,000 years ago. Look, it could have been 15. We do not have exact timing on this, but around that time there's the belief of the agricultural revolution. And the reason the agricultural revolution started was that hunter-gatherers became quite large in number. And after a certain amount, I think it was like 22 to 25 was the group size. And so they would split into groups of 25 or or so. If it got any bigger, it was very hard to be a hunter-gatherer because, um, for instance, the Australian Aboriginals never carried food. They manifested their food in the morning. So they they sat around in a circle and they thanked their plants and animals um, that that 
would decide to sacrifice their life for them on that day. In their in, path. In their path that came along their path that they would sacrifice themselves for them to live another day. So for them to be in huge bands, like 200, 300, it would never have worked. They were small tribes. And so the belief was that the agricultural revolution started because of these big bands of people. And they needed to figure out how they could stay stable. And, of course, if you look at a grass, it drops its seed and more grass grows. So they started to manipulate. You know, man, man got smart. And the reason they believed man got smart was that the belief was that it was cooking that made us human. So around Homo habilis, so there was Homo habilis, Homo erectus and Homo sapien. So we're back around 1.4 million years ago when Homo habilis was the first to use fire. This is the belief. And by them using fire, they started to cook the meats and foods, just like throwing it on a fire. And that allowed the food to give them more nutrition, which means they didn't need to eat from breakfast right through to dinner and their whole life wasn't consumed with food. They had time to uh, do other things. And so their dexterity increased and they banded in communities. and uh, Did Sudoku. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, started Sudoku. They were Japanese, Texting. I'm sure of it. <laughs> Facebook, no. So that was the belief. Mm. And then as that happened, they believed the brain case increased, digestive system decreased, our teeth went smaller because we didn't need to be chewing raw things all the time. So our teeth got smaller. And that was the belief as that why we became human. And as time marched on to Homo sapien, which is only around three or 400 years ago, we continued to be hunter-gatherers. We became great hunters. I remember when I was doing anthropology that they would, they would create stampedes over cliffs and then all the animals would go over the cliff and they would use all the animals and the, the parts of, of the animal. That was... I remember, I remember wow. the pictures that we used to see of that, yeah. yeah. And they, you know, they started to, yeah, become quite good warriors. There was also, as the brain craze increased, they started to be able to manipulate and make tools. And one of the tools that they made, apparently, was a bowl. And bowls are seen in a lot of anthropological mm. digs or archaeological digs. So they'd add water to the bowl, add the meat and the veggies to the bowl... And they would make broths. Mm. So that was the next form of cooking. And then the next form of cooking was figuring out that they could put a lid on that bowl, not put water in, and they would bake food. So that was the belief that that was the beginning of baking a bread and um, and that type of, of – yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I just love it. And then the next one was when they had to preserve foods, they started to realise that if they fermented the food, the food would preserve – so that was the beginning of, of probably sauerkraut and kefir and yogurt and kimchi. And I remember hearing a story about how yogurt came about. And I think it was like Till of the Hun, maybe. I don't know if it was Till of the Hun. Um, maybe that was too um, late in time. But it was some great warrior that put milk in the pouch that it was made from... The stomach of something. Yeah, exactly, the stomach of something. And they put the milk in there, and after jigging through the desert on his camel or something, <laughs> um, when he finally opened it up, the milk had curdled and there was a it, there was the beginning of kefir and yogurt. Interesting. Wow. And cheeses and things like that. So these are the stories you hear, whether they're myths or whether they're true or not. You know, they make for a great story. <laughs> well, I'm fascinated. you remember it all? I'm sitting <laughs> well, here going... 
just gave this topic to you and you're just pulling it out, aren't you? You're just... Honestly, do you know what it's like to be with this woman? She's seriously insane. <laughs> but remember, I did anthropology. It's a fascinating topic. Yeah, it really is. And, and I loved it. And it was one of my favourite subjects. And I've never stopped learning. I, I keep going back and, and reading books. Like Rangahan from Harvard University, he wrote a book um, called... Uh, Catching Fire. Oh, yeah. And everybody thinks that I'm saying Catching Fire from The Hunger Games. But his book is Catching Catching Fire. And it is about this uh, belief that we became human because we started cooking. Mm. So then once fermentation and preservation started, we were able to hold foods for longer and we could stay in places. We didn't have to keep hunting and moving and gathering. Then the last type of food, so we've done the four, we've done the barbecue, the broths or the, you know, the slow cook, the baking, the preserving of food. And the last one, which has only happened in the last 40 years, is the preservation of foods using chemicals. So it's the chemicalization of food. Go on, when you say that, I'm sitting here thinking, I thought you were going to say some amazing, beautiful, nurturing, anthropological kind of thing. And you said that and it sounded like a real clanger. I don't know if the rest of you noticed mm. it, but I felt like that was a real clanger. Man... It's very clever, and I understand that through evolution we have become more and more clever, and we seem to be doing things much quicker and better and easier. But are we cleverer? Are we? I mean, I, I know you've heard you say this before, but the the food that we eat is very much governed politically, and I might not have this right, and I, I don't even know if we've mentioned it on a podcast before. But the the one example I remember is when aspartame was taken off the market, which is a sweetener which was taken off the market because of all these adverse reactions through America. And then what they ended up doing with that is there was such an outcry from the American public that they demanded, screamed to have it back. When Ronald Reagan got elected back into being the president, within a certain, a short period of time, aspartame was back on the market. I think you're talking about saccharin. No, it's it aspartame. aspartame. I'm sure it's Because they did it with saccharin as well. And apparently the manufacturers of aspartame actually backed Reagan's campaign. So that's when I first started understanding. (laughs) So I started, I never questioned it until Mm. I read and heard about that. And that's when I started really researching and realising that everything around food is so um, political. And it always has been. Right. Like, let's go back 11,000 years ago. The beginning of the agricultural revolution was when we started to grow our own grasses and grains because grains are grasses. They're almost like a seed. It's, it's very, like, the whole thing between, you know, people say, oh, quinoa's a seed and wheat's a grain and einkorn's a grass. You know, so there's a real, um, to me, uh, there's a real grey area as to what's a seed, what's a grass and what's a grain. It's just what has been termed. So in 11,000 years ago, they began the agricultural revolution where they started to manipulate the seeds and and grow them themselves, not hybridise or anything like that. They just did that manipulation and started to use it. And because they stayed in one place and because they started to manipulate their, their food, they weren't constantly, once again, they weren't constantly going out looking for food, they were able to do more things. And it was because of the agricultural revolution that we had the hierarchy of, of um, the English aristocracy. So the English aristocracy was the, the duke or the, the lord of the manor who then ran all the fields, and then there was the king and the queen. So it, the more land you had... As it, as it went on, 
the more you had power because you had power to manipulate who got food and who didn't get food. And then the peasants would look after the fields, but they had to pay a hefty price and they had to, you know, feed the king and the queen. I was actually at a seminar this year and this guy explained the whole thing about the hierarchy and how it happened. And, but this is all what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about it on lords and dukes and kings and queens. Now we're talking about who, who runs our, our food, our big, big food, big pharma, big chemical, big corporations. Mm-hmm. And they do manipulate us and they manipulate the food and they do not tell us the truth. So mm-hmm. it's just, I, I look at the way we've gone from cooking to agriculture. But what agriculture also did was enabled us to become smarter and to start to build and to be where we are right now. And my belief is that if it wasn't for the agricultural revolution, and all you have to do is look at the hunter-gatherers out there that are still living in their their basic hunter-gatherer lifestyle, they have not progressed from 400 years ago or even 11,000 years ago. They're, you know, they're still hunter-gatherers. They don't have... They didn't build ships... You know, we were building huge ships in the 16th century that, like, I went to Sweden this year and went to Stockholm and went to the Vasa Museum. And to see this 1600th century ship, I'm thinking, wow, we were able to do a lot. And even looking at the, the cities in Europe that are a 1,000 years old and the churches that are a 1,000 years old, hunter-gatherers couldn't have done that. The only reason we have become who we are today is because of the agricultural revolution. Mm. So paleo has become very, very in vogue to do because we have lost the ability to be robust, to eat a variety of foods. And so by narrowing our foods down to our foods of our ancestors, we seem to be able to survive better. But seven, in my way of thinking, seven to eight billion people can't survive on a paleo diet. And people will fight me on this. They'll say, oh, we'll just have to have small plots. But what about the cities? What about going to, what's one of the biggest cities in the world, 56 million? I know. How how do you feed 56 million on little plots? Yeah, and there's not enough plots. With a cow in each land. There's not enough plots. Um, So um, on that point then, what... What do you see would be the answer? Like, I know I've heard you joke at certain seminars saying, oh, for goodness sake, don't, don't tell everybody yeah, about yeah. this because there won't be enough for us all. So what is the answer? How Bring it back to the home. Bring it back to me as a mum or the dads mm. listening to this. What can we do? What's the best thing for us, do you think? Because everybody's asking about paleo yeah, at the moment. Yeah, and what yeah. don't you like about paleo? Well, look, I... I um what I don't like about paleo, and I'm not strictly against paleo, I think as a, a starting off place, a healing diet. I have a healing diet in Changing Habits. It's called the Hunter-Gatherer Elimination Protocol. And it's about going back to those basic food groups and not eating any grain, legume, nuts. I don't even let, do nuts because nuts are becoming an issue. No dairy, no nothing. So that's what I love about it. It's a healing diet. But when you say no nothing... You mean there's absolutely nothing to eat now? No, no, meat, <laughs> greens, um, fruit, seeds, yeah. eggs. You just went, no, nothing. No, 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 no nuts. nuts, no nuts. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, sorry, no, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that was silly. Um, so we're breatheterians on this yeah, diet. Yeah, sorry, boy, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, so that's, 
that's that. So, so go, carry on with that then. What's the things you like about it? So that's what I love about it. I feel it's a really good healing diet mm. to get people off foods that may be causing them problems. But then you have to ask why they're causing them problems. So if we go back to the 60s, 50s and 60s, we were eating beautiful breads, great dairy. We were eating all these foods and nobody had the issues they've got today. So something's happened between the 50s and 60s and even 70s and modern diet and modern day. And if we we go back and we look at everything, we look at the manipulation of the grain, we look at genetic modification, we look at Roundup being used, pesticides being used, fungicides being used. Um, we look at the grinding of the grain, the taking out of the wheat germ, the taking out of the bran, the, the, the fact that wheat is in everything. It's in breakfast cereals, bread, pasta, wheat-based sugars. It's like every food that I see on the supermarket shelf that has not got a gluten-free thing on it has wheat in it in some manipulation. So that was the wheat. Then the dairy. So the dairy then became manipulated. It got pasteurised, homogenised, skimmed, trimmed, revved, shaped. They added fish oil to it. I found milk with fish oil in it. I found they put calcium in it and it could be dolomite. It was it began as dolomite and then it was probably calcium carbonate, which is calcium or um, which is coral. So they've manipulated these two foods because they're great agricultural resources. Wheat is Australia's one of Australia's biggest commodities. And dairy's not far behind it. It's New Zealand's biggest. It is. It's New Zealand's <laughs> biggest. And do you know what's really interesting is that in the 80s, wheat could only be grown in Victoria and southern New South Wales. But now it can be grown throughout the whole of Australia because of the manipulation and hybridisation of the wheat grain. Cindy, what do you think the problem is with human beings? I mean, is it an issue with us? Do we have a real competitive greed mindset that's creating this problem? I read somewhere just recently by a, a, an amazing researcher, and he said, you know, even by when you're growing your vegetables, let's say you're growing something green in your vegetable garden, and you get annoyed by the snail. So you mm. pick the snails off and discard them, probably kill them, put them in boiling water, whatever it is people do to get rid of them. But we're robbing one species the right and deserve deservedness mm. to to survive. Is that how we see? Do you think that's how human beings operate? I mean, there's no there doesn't seem to be a harmonistic way of love all, serve all, help all, hurt never. So it's kind of like I like that. <laughs> I just I don't understand why our mentality is so competitive. And and even when I look at the modern day person today, particularly young women. We're competitive about the way we look. We compare ourselves constantly to someone else. Um, we're never quite good enough, and therefore we take from others, or we put them down, or we use our words and vocabulary, or we... Facebook. Oh, don't go there. Or we use um, politics or anything mm. like that. So, again, I bring it back to asking you, what can we do in the home as an individual and... With the Paleolithic understanding and that kind of mindset and culture, how do we bring that back to basics? Well, if we look at the Paleolithic lifestyle, because it's not just about the food. So we look at the whole gamut of things about the paleo. So in, and I don't think a lot of paleo people are really even thinking this way. They're just going meat, veg, you know, fruit, berries, and then, and then they're adding, you know, coconut oil and things like that. So let's have a look at the, the lifestyle of the hunter-gatherer and then maybe we can make it work into modern life. Maybe we could do that. So we had seasons. So we had the four seasons. 
Um, and each season gave us um, something different. So spring would mean we'd um, start to get more greenery, our fruits would start to bud, but maybe they weren't quite ripe yet. Uh, so things became more available. By the summer, there was lots of green grass, our, our cows were getting fatter, they were laying down saturated fat, um, there was an abundance of really sweet fruits, and we would eat lots of fat and lots of sugar, basically, in the summer. Then as autumn came, that became less and less. The meat got less saturated fat. The sweet fruits started to disappear and the winter fruits came in and they could have been like apples or pears or, you know, those oranges. types of fruit, oranges, citrus, lemon would have come in. Also, um, the, the meat would have become less available to us and probably more leaner. So we weren't eating as much fat, but nuts and seeds came out. So while in the summer we were eating saturated fats, in the winter we started to eat polyunsaturated fats. And so many paleos believe that they should only be eating saturated fat, when in actual fact they should have a nice balance between the two. Mm. Then we had night and day. So in the winter we had longer nights and shorter days. So we slept more in the winter and we did a bit of a hibernation uh, because the food wasn't available. We used to use our fat stores that we we got from the summer we'd use our fat stores to live so night and day were really important circadian rhythms were a part of us we were grounding all the time so we were getting electrons from uh, the the ground so we always had bare feet and so the sand and the soil and the and the water and all would give us electrons and Dr. Jack Cruz, who's one of my... I just love him. He thinks so differently. He says, don't look at food anymore for fat, salt, sugar, protein. Look at food for electron transfer. And look at the foods that are bountiful in electrons, which are like your salmon and um, your, your dense foods, like nuts and seeds. And he says, you must also get your, your electrons from your grounding. Uh, so there was there was all this, and there was no EMS, <laughs> there was no Wi-Fi that came into your bedroom, and there were ten Wi-Fi's there. <laughs> so if you look at the the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, there was night and day, long winter nights and short days, and in the summer there were shorter um, winter, uh, shorter nights and longer days, and so there was an ebb and flow to our lifestyle. But now we live in a lifestyle that. Yeah, we live in this lifestyle that doesn't ebb and flow, that we do not have polyunsaturated fats in the winter and saturated fats in the summer. We actually have saturated fats available all the time, unsaturated fats available all the time. So I try and live a hunter-gatherer or a, I don't, I don't want to call it a, a, a hunter-gatherer, but a, a more natural lifestyle, a lifestyle where as night starts to fall, my lights start to dim in my home that we try and put all of our phones on. We don't try. We do put all of our phones on flight mode and turn our Wi-Fi off. The problem is is that there's a bunch of other Wi-Fis around. So I can't get rid of that um, unless I move probably into the middle of Australia. <laughs> and then maybe, well, then there's satellites. Who knows? Well, you light your vaporizer and you make sure you've got your That's salt right. lamps and That's your, right. your go. vaporizers going. Yeah. So I think the great thing about that is that when you live in such a vast city, or sorry, a, you know, a built-up city, you do have to take other measures to accommodate such close mm. neighbours. But you're right, darling. Yeah, modern and, technology can help us fake our hunter-gatherer evolutionary bodies. Okay. In what way? You Just mean? what you said. Oh, okay. The salt lamp and yes. the, the vaporisers. Yeah. Great, great thinking. These yeah. are the things that we've learnt 
you know, begin to help us. Mm. And I think the important thing is, is as parents that we are really trying to teach rather than just the way we eat. I, what I'm loving what you're saying is it's actually a holistic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's looking at everything. Do you think um, we will survive the human species the right we're going? You know, I, 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 um, I interviewed Sally Fallon um, a couple of years ago now, and Sally Fallon is head of Western Price and... She's an amazing lady in her 60s, I think now, late 60s, who wrote a book called Nourishing Traditions. Traditions. Beautiful book. Mm. And she's all about this old-fashioned lifestyle, including the grains and the legumes and the dairy. She, She keeps it all in. And I said this to her. I asked her the same question. I said, what hope do we have? And she says, don't worry about the people who don't want to listen to you, Cindy. There will be people who will listen, and they will the ones that will remain fertile. Those that don't listen will eventually become infertile and die out. And it's not just about listening to me, but it's about listening to our evolutionary past. It's about going back to basics, back to a lifestyle that our body can cope with. But not only have we, uh, you know, changed how we sleep, you know, and, and screens in front of our eyes and our movement, because our movement wasn't, was based on running walking, hunting, lifting, you know, all of these things we have to then fake because that's what our body gets used to. So there's there's grounding, there's movement, there's our food, there's connection. So we were always connected. There was always groups around us. So <laughs> Not Wi-Fi connected. No, not Wi-Fi <laughs> connected, but, you know, connections as friends and, mm. and family uh, and things like that. And uh, I, was, I had a point there, Kimmy. What I'm was sorry. the question you asked me? Um, no, you asked me the question. Do you think that we'll survive? That's right. Will we survive? So the other thing that has changed is our microbiome. So if we go to the Hunza now and we test the variety of bacteria that surrounds the Hunza people, who are still hunter-gatherers, it's around, um, with some agriculture, they do do agriculture, it's around 5,000 in variation, whereas our microbiome in the Western world is around 1,500. Wow. So without a microbiome, we would be dead. We have to have a healthy microbiome. So if we do not start thinking about our evolutionary past and the importance of us living with bugs, so this is the question you asked me, was, you know, we pick a snail off and we boil it and, and, or whatever we do to it or kill it, we're, and we've done the same thing in medicine. We've gone, oh, bacteria is bad, let's just kill it all without considering what bacteria does for us. Mm-hmm. So if we look at the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, the belief was that we had a certain microbiome as hunter-gatherers and then we domesticated the dog. So, And if you look at the Australian Aboriginals, the belief that the dingo has been here for 60,000 years with the Australian Aboriginals is that uh, the hunter-gatherer has had a dog or a domestic animal with them for at least 60,000, if not more, years. And once we brought the dog to within our community, we started to bring in parasites and a different type of microorganism. And there's now evidence that hookworm saves us from other diseases. By getting hookworm, it actually saves us from other diseases. By, you know, having another type of parasite, it actually helps us with other diseases. And I wish I could remember what they are, but that's another book that I read. I think it's called An Epidemic of Absence, the book. 
um, if anybody wants to get it. And he actually explains this whole evolution of how man domesticated the animals and introduced different species of bacteria and parasites to him. And we began to cope with those. But as we had progressed through time, we wanted to destroy the parasite, the bacteria, the virus, because we feel that they are endangering us. But in actual fact, we actually can use them to become healthy. So on that note, if that's the case, and we go into and we wake up tomorrow and we go, you know what, honey, we're going paleo. Yeah. And as a family, we've made a decision, and you've even got your husband on board, or your husband's got the wife on board, and you go paleo. Mm. So now we've gone real strict. We've taken out all sugar, most sugars. We're eating berries, meat, fish, eggs, chicken. Um, is lots that of greens. Fish eggs row or fish and eggs? <laughs> <laughs> Probably both. Yeah, row. Um, but you've also got to eat um, liver and. Yeah, so yeah, offal. Or offal. All of that. Let's all say of we that. go that okay. way. What's that going to do to our immune system and how do we cope with the multitude of other people still in our environment, though, that carry other bugs? And mm. is this a good thing? Is it good for our systems to do this? Is it good to cold turkey ourselves off processed foods? Is it. What would be the way to go paleo, or is that the right thing to do for everybody? Uh, wow. You know, I wrote my book, Changing Habits, Changing Lives, to do it slowly, to go back to the natural way slowly. So if you're doing breakfast cereals and modified milk and Vegemite and margarine and cheese and, and toast that's made with 50 ingredients and cheese sandwiches with plastic cheese and lean cuisine or healthy choice, which has got the heart to give approval, you know, if you're eating that crap... And you go hunter-gatherer, I think it would be a huge change in your in who you are as a human being. And can a human being change that quickly? Can they just go, well, this is what I'm eating and now I'm going to go eat that? I'm just not sure that somebody who's eating that way is even thinking straight or thinking right. So let's just get them thinking where let's put real foods on the table. Let's put real breads and real legumes and real dairy and get them back to that. And just explain real breads, though, because some people still yeah. think of like tip-top bread as real bread. <laughs> no, real bread is probably made with your your heirloom flours, such as einkorn, which is what we sell at Changing Habits. We're the only Australian supplier of einkorn that's organic. In, really? Yeah, we're the only ones. Nobody else supplies organic einkorn. Um, so you can get it at Changing Habits. Um, and then you use sourdough because that would have been the old-fashioned way. We didn't have yeast. We didn't have prepared yeast. So you would create a sourdough. And thank goodness there are some bakers doing this. Mm. So, or you can actually use maybe a spelt sourdough, which is more likely to be out there. But if you really wanted to go traditional, then you would go einkorn or emma wheat, which are the two um, traditional heirloom wheats. So you, and then you would put salt in there and some fat in there. And um, you don't even need sugar because the sourdough can live off... Um, the sugar within the wheat, yeah. which is amylose. So that's the type of bread that they would be eating. And they would be eating butter that's not margarine but real butter. So I think if there's a family and we're wanting to make changes, then I would start with at least going to Changing Habits, Changing Lives and slowly looking at your salt because it's everything. It's not just, you know, let's just go paleo. It's It's the salt you use. It's the dairy you use and how do you find a good dairy and what is a good dairy because it's like a minefield out there. You you go to the dairy cabinet and there's, you know, 40 types of milk now, whereas it comes from one cow. 
the other other thing I'm hearing here is it's actually not even just so much going paleo. It's actually adapting a whole new philosophy, a whole new way of living. And, and, you know, what I love about the paleo movement and what it's doing and and the strong voices out there talking about paleo is for once people are starting to actually think about what they're eating mm. rather than just blatantly eating crap that's mm. put on the table every night because that's what everyone thought is normal eating. So, you know, like when I mean that, I mean like, you know, perhaps taking bloody frozen fish fingers out of the freezer and um, mashed potato and, and frozen peas. So what we thought was normal is now we're realising is just how processed and plastic it all is. But the philosophy around it is not just eating meat and greens and berries. It's actually looking at grass-fed beef or beef that's been ethically grown. and, And because I also, my other understanding around this too is, particularly living in a country like Australia with such extremes, you can't always get grass-fed beef because the beef is starving mm. because there's not enough grass because we've got a drought or a flood or whatever. So it's perhaps even another step on from that what I'm hearing is that we actually start building relationships and have rapport with the people that are actually growing it. And this is where I really honour our farmers' markets. And every time we've gone to farmers' markets and every time we go, we strike up conversations with the farmers. And then when I see what it's taken them to grow those and you know the, just for an example 28 is 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 an all vegan except for one of our products and and I didn't really have a full appreciation of this and I you know I, I, I in one way I apologize to the vegans I never thought of it in this way but one of our products the lip balm has got beeswax in it then when a vegan said to me well I, I would never use that it's an animal product and then I got really upset and thought wow, what's happening to the bees? So then I got in touch with our bee, beeswax provider and I said, please, can you explain to me how you look up, you know, what do you do with the bees from an ethical point of view? And he came back going, bees are my babies. These bees are absolutely precious to me and not one bee has been harmed in the production of your beeswax. <laughs> and I just, it made me fall in love with him yeah. even more because I really valued the philosophy and the integrity and the the... The, the sustainability around what he was doing. And, and I think, and when you and I were at the Noosa Markets recently and we got to meet the avocado man mm. and, and we were standing there talking to him and then he was talking about creating a conglomerate of farmers that were going to support us. Mm. There is actually a way, isn't there, to, to embrace this philosophy and perhaps one of the most simplest ways to do that is take your family to the farmer's markets on a Saturday or a Sunday morning and just get back to basics there and take a basket instead of plastic bags. Take a a beautiful, um, you know, I love it when I see the women there with these big round baskets and it's over their arm and they're gathering all their herbs and fresh flowers and and their butter and, and they even take containers and that whole value around recycling and not even using containers that modern society uses. So... You can take it to many levels, oh, can't yes. you? Oh, yes. Look, I, as, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking it is. It's a whole philosophy. It, it is, you know, looking at everything. But it's very hard to bounce from that, that what you're doing is you're going to the grocery store, getting all packaged foods to the way you and I have been talking and the way we think. So... So, like, and I know for me it's a journey. It's been a journey for me and it's been a journey for you too. And I've been on this journey for 30 years. That the knowledge is out there so people can get it. And if they want to go from that breakfast cereal, lean cuisine food to 
changing their lifestyle completely, then jump into it, embrace it and do it. And, and do start at those farmer's markets and have a relationship like you said, you know. And getting to know them. It was interesting. We were at a wedding on the weekend. And that would be you and me, wouldn't it? Be? Yeah, yeah. We did go to a wedding. <laughs> and, and and what was fascinating is the the food that came around and and that was being served. And what I noticed is a couple of our friends around us who are very big health advocates mm. as well. And this is something that some of you may recognise was you know all all the food that came around had wheat in it, every single one of it. So even though you and I were quite hungry. I noticed you and I just kept saying, no, no, thank you, no, thank you. Is there anything gluten-free? Is there anything else? And yet the people around us were all going, oh, it's the weekend. Oh, I've been so good for so long. Um, Oh, I just figured it doesn't matter this weekend. I'll start again Monday. And what I'm realising is that there's actually a, a distinct group of people that think that they're healthy or perhaps are creating a movement towards being healthy, but they still haven't fully committed. Yep. And that's what I'm noticing is the commitment to what that level of a paleolithic lifestyle is. And not that I would call myself paleo by any means of the word, because especially because when I think paleo, I think broths, big carcasses, Vikings chewing <laughs> blooming leg bones off each other and things like that, and but kind of quite primal. I think it's a degree. Yeah. So you are on... The scope of it, you're on the degree of it. And I value it and I really respect it Mm. and I really appreciate what the movement's doing. Mm. But for someone like me who doesn't want to eat meat, I could still live a paleo lifestyle, couldn't I? I could still eat everything else if I didn't eat meat. What would someone like me who doesn't eat a lot of meat, would I miss out on anything by not eating the way you eat? Um, I've tried with broth, Cindy, I've tried. All right, so let's, let's take the Australian Aboriginal who lives inland and there's, let's say there's no waterways and they find their water the way they do. I don't know how they do it. And all they have is goanna or kangaroo or something like that. They don't ever eat fish and there was no poultry sitting there. And then let's look at somebody who lives in a region where all they have is fish because it's so cold that nothing else lives around them and they're probably going to get eaten by the polar bear as opposed to trying to kill the polar bear. So they eat a lot of fish. So remember there are varying degrees of the hunter. Mm. Not the gatherer, but the hunter. And so you're a great gatherer. You eat all the gatherings of vegetables and nuts and seeds and, and eggs. And, and if we want to have heirloom grain um, or grasses, let's call them seeds even, if we were having that. So where you've decided that you will eat is not red meat because that's not what you enjoy. But you enjoy poultry and fish. Like we sat down to dinner tonight and we had a beautiful beautiful fish dinner absolutely Mm. and there was a lot of fish there Mm. probably more meat than I would normally eat Mm. that you had in fish so I don't think you're missing out in any Mm. any stretch of the imagination I know you probably and you could do fish row you you could do fish row and you could do um, fish uh, liver (laughs) she's just losing it right now I don't even know what a fish liver looks like well um, fish liver is very high in vitamin A and vitamin D and let, let's go to Scotland. Let's just go to Scotland. So the Scottish eat haggis. Haggis is all of the sweetbreads and the liver and all of the, you know, all, the, all of that stuff is haggis. Haggis is high in vitamin A and vitamin D. Now in Scotland, it's very cold in the winter and there's very little sunlight because it's drizzly and cloudy. And most of them are blue. Yeah, <laughs> all, all got red hair, yeah, blues. And... 
they would need to eat that haggis mm. in order to get their vitamin D, in order for them to function at a high energy, for their, their guts to work well. Vitamin D makes cholesterol, which makes the brain work well. And mm. um, Oh, sorry, cholesterol makes vitamin D, but it needs sunlight. And and so all of these things... But then that's also why they're so fair-skinned, because yeah. they do not need as much sunlight as someone that's in Africa. Exactly. So they may only need seven minutes in the sun or of some, some sort of sunlight as in order to get the same amount of vitamin D yeah. transference. So okay. cultures figured out what they needed to eat in order to survive. So it's not necessarily they eat red meat and they eat this. It could be fish and chicken or poultry that was only available to them. Nothing else is available. Like guano, is that poultry? <laughs> so what would your advice be to a family? <laughs> yeah. Crocodile, is that poultry? <laughs> oh, yeah. Fish? <laughs> it's not normal. She tried to make me go swimming the other day, I refused, and then sends me a text saying, oh my gosh, it was amazing, the water was so clear. And those swimming way back found a shark swim underneath them. Ha ha. And I emailed her back going... Are you serious? I'm such a slow swimmer. I would have been the last one and I would have been bloody well eaten. And then she comes back going, no, it was full. And I'm thinking, what are you, the shark whisperer now? (laughs) You actually know this guy? Seriously, she's trying to entice me. Um, I'm not a fish. Um, What would your advice be to our beautiful listeners? Let's say one of you is on board. Mm. How do you convert a family? Mm. What do you do? You just go to the pantry. And you look at all your packaged food in your pantry and you first of all look at, well, what are alternatives that I can use? So first of all, salt and, then, and sugar and um, butter versus margarine. So look at the things that you can substitute without them knowing. Mm. Then once you've started to do that, then start looking at further things that you can substitute. So if I make a cake these days, I never make it with... You know, I, ne- I don't use wheat. Wheat's not allowed in my house because of the unethics and the hybridisation and the, the whole thing around it. I've just decided wheat's not allowed in my house. So I'll make cakes with different things. But people come to my house and they have a, a, have a cake and they go, wow, this is so nice and there's no wheat in it whatsoever. Mm. There's other goodies in it. Mm. Uh, so it's about... <laughs> Jacob, you just reminded me. We had a bit of a birthday celebration we with Jacob. Did. <laughs> you know? And, and the, I said to him, honey, if you could have any cake you wanted, what would it be? And he goes, can I just have a normal chocolate cake? <laughs> like normal, mum. None of your strange, weird, all your garbage. Can I please just have normal chocolate cake? And I thought, well, it is normal. So anyway, I made him a grain-free, gluten-free. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a bit of rapidura sugar in it and everything. And then I made a gluten-free dairy-free even icing with coconut milk and cacao wafers and rapadura sugar. And and then I split the cake in half and I poured half of it in there while it was still hot so that this chocolate sauce melted into the middle of the cake. And then I let it sit in the fridge and I, and I put the top of it, I iced with that, and put a little bit more rapadura sugar in the top bit because it just gave it a bit more sweetness. Everybody raved about it. And including him, he actually, mm-hmm. and it was moist and it was beautiful. So, you know, you can actually, mm-hmm. as much as they might give you grief and they might all go, what's this? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I've just noticed that be patient, mm-hmm. you know, take your time yeah. and realize that there's going to be probably a little bit of conflict to start with. And But the greatest thing is, oh, sorry, there wasn't any left. Oh, I haven't had time to go and get it. So, Or, the, or if they're young enough. They're not, it's not on the grocery store. It's yeah, not yeah. there anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've run out. <laughs> they don't make Vegemite anymore, no, darling. No. no. <laughs> um, but the other thing that I thought was quite interesting was, 
we do adapt and and we do as mums we are the ones that have to be vigilant and mm. stick to our core and what we believe in i can't control what my teenage children eat when i'm not around but what i do notice is they come back to home base a lot and they do know and you know what after going to see dr carlos sanchez as a family this was a beautiful thing to do together mm. as a unit so we all heard each other's results with our blood tests now i will admit we spent quite a few thousand dollars doing this so I understand some people will say, oh, it'd be great, but I couldn't do that. But I actually saved up for this, and I made a decision after three months of saving as much as I could and chose not to spend on other things that month so that we could do it. And going as a family, and I also invested the time with my mother-in-law, and we all had our blood tests and we did all these different things. To, I wanted some real science readings, but I also wanted to hear it from someone who had knowledge. And my mm. mother-in-law fell in love with Carlos and actually for the first time really understood. She's been so fearful of getting off her thyroid tablets and cholesterol tablets and all of that. Mm. For the first time she heard it from a lecturer from Harvard University, which I think was high enough for her intellectual to appreciate <laughs> and respect him. But also she heard it. What I've been saying for years, she just heard it in a way that she actually really honoured me, which was beautiful. She said, oh, Thumbi, I realise you've been saying this for years. I, I actually, And the fact that I'd invested that money into doing that with her. You know, she's gone back to New Zealand, and God bless her. She's emailed me saying, still no bread since I've seen you. Um, still a work in progress too, but do want you to know that I've stopped certain things because of that. So, you know, I've been telling her for years to get off bread. And finally, mm. she heard it from someone, even though she's been even hearing it from you and mm. all of one in our tribe. Mm. It was actually sitting there with the cold, hard data in front of her and someone with that knowledge explaining it to her in an intellectual way. She's a very intelligent woman in a way that she could hear it. And maybe she was ready to hear it. You know, there's all sorts of things. But I think if we can do the best we can in our family environment and give it the best advice, I, I would say the same as you, Cindy. Start off with changing habits, changing lives. Um, and if you yourself, I actually know of families out there who the wife and one of the daughters is totally on board, the husband doesn't agree with it, and one of the other kids is kind of in between, but they all somehow coexist mm -hmm. and do their little thing and give each other grief about some things and also <laughs> love each other regardless. And I don't think anything's what you'd call perfect. So maybe it's just about focusing on what you do for you and, like you've always said, live by example perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if no one else is going to change, you change. Mm. Because you can't change anybody else. You can only change yourself. That's the one person you know that you can change, and even though some people can't seem to change themselves. I, I think it's a movement. Is it a fad? I don't think so. But what I think we'll see is we won't see the extremes of it. So an extreme was what we talked about in the beginning. That we, you know, there'll be varying degrees of it, and there'll be a realisation that we must honour our evolutionary bodies because if we don't we won't survive that that's the way I look at it and that was one of your questions is mm. as, as a species will we survive no we won't if we do not honour our evolutionary body and how it works and how the circadian rhythms work and how our sleep patterns work and how um you know, we ground our, our electrons, our cycles, the moon. Mm. You know, the moon and our female cycles are so interlinked. And, and this is another thing is that a lot of the experiments about paleo and athletes and um, are all based on men, not women. Women are very different to men. 
For instance, one of the biggest things that's happening at the moment in the paleo movement is the ketogenic movement, which is fat. You know, 80% of the diet is fat, I believe. I think 5% is carbohydrates and, and maybe 15% is protein. So a male going on the ketogenic diet, he seems to survive far better than a female going on the ketogenic diet. And the reason why is that a female that goes on a ketogenic diet doesn't have a lot of fat on her. Because what they do is they use the fat for energy. And so she doesn't have a lot of fat on her. Therefore, her hormones, she becomes intermittently infertile. And, and what they've figured out is that the Inuits became in, in intermittently infertile because they needed to be infertile. So if there was no carbohydrates available, then they were never going to be able to feed a baby and that baby would not have been viable and would not have survived. So there was a reason why there are times where, um, when our food supply is in excess and our food supply is in, in less, why we're infertile intermittently um, versus being fertile. And we just have to start realising that this evolutionary body knows what to do, but we must give it the right resources. We didn't know this 10 years ago, what we know today. We are just beginning to understand it, and the layperson is now jumping on the bandwagon. And I just feel the more science we have, the more we realise that moving away from our natural way of living is what causes our disconnect with what's happening at the moment as far as our health goes and why we this disconnect we have with our evolutionary body is what's causing our ill health. Do you think then... Oh, it's funny you should say that because I made myself a keto coffee this morning. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but... Yeah. <laughs> And, and for those of you interested, um, the keto coffee is a term that Cindy created and I named. I know another wonderful one we did. I know, I know. <laughs> Which is a shot of coffee, a tablespoon of nut butter, a tablespoon of coconut oil, a tablespoon of unsalted butter. Or ghee. Or ghee. Or ghee. And, or this morning I use cream. And oh, did you? Cream instead of the butter. Oh. And one or two cacao wafers. It's so, it's like drinking and then you blend it at a certain, te- you know, at the desired temperature for maybe a minute or so to get it. Or you can do it on the stove as well. But and then you whip it and, and emulsify it. it and you it's know. just, and then when you drink it, it's like this, it's, <laughs> it's not a syrup. It's more like a, um, it's like velvet. Mm-hmm. Um, velvet. It's, it's like drinking velvet. Mm. And it's beautiful and it's mm. thick and it's luxurious. Do you know, I was not hungry. I don't get hung- If I have one of those first thing in the morning, I'm not hungry until, you know, well into after lunch. But this morning I decided, because it tasted so good, <laughs> that I made a double shot of all of this. So I just want you to picture all of that double. <laughs> and then, yeah, a little biohacker here decided it tasted so good and I didn't think I'd have much time to eat today, so I ate the whole lot. Oh, look, I got to work. I was spinning out. I thought I was going to throw up. What was happening there? Was my gallbladder just screaming at me? Well, something, it could have been the caffeine, number one, because you did double shot, like you did two lots of coffee. Mm. So it could have been the caffeine, one, although you're not affected much by caffeine. But the other thing is that is that you've just pounded yourself with this huge amount of fat. So it's like going from a carbohydrate diet <laughs> straight on to the keto, you know, ketogenic <laughs> diet. Your gallbladder, it will. It, it, it's not used to that. 
So the way, if we look at nature, it would have been a slow coming off the carbohydrates and an increase in the fat. So my point is, don't follow Kim Morrison when it comes to these And don't double up. Just because no. one's good, don't double up. <laughs> um, I love it, Kim. Do you have, just as a, in summary and finally, for people to get more information... Mm. Who are some of the books and the doctors and the people that you love to read? Mm. Who are some of the websites you like to follow? I know you're starting to do a lot more work now with a beautiful, um, the Peter Evans, who is very big on paleo. Um, He's got a Facebook page called Chef Pete Evans. Um, And his his stories, he puts stories up about people who have gone from the junk food diet to the hunter-gatherer diet. And... They're phenomenal stories. Oh, Absolutely they're phenomenal. They're inspiring. They're and inspiring. it just gives you that whole sense of, oh, they could do that, I could do that, or mm-hmm. recognising yourself in that. Mm. Which books would you recommend? Well, you know, we've got The Paleo Show that um, I know, that Dr. Brett Brett does. Yeah, that was the podcast, yeah. but I was going to go books for Oh, books first. Sorry, yeah. podcast. Um, so books. Well, there's my hunter-gatherer elimination protocol, which gives you a lot of information on it. Changing Habits also gives you information on it. There's also Lauren Cordain's book. He That was the very first book that comes out. But he's against saturated fat, and I don't agree with him entirely. Um, so, But his book is really good. Um, What's that called? The, uh, the Paleo... Um, diet? I don't know, but it's Lauren Cordain. That's yeah. the author. So I can remember authors. I can never remember names um, of the book because there are so many out there. So... There's the Paleo Approach. Oh, I remembered it. By Sarah Ballantyne. Yeah. There's that one. Death um, by Food Pyramid with Denise Minger. And she talks about why we eat the way we're eating with the carbohydrates and why we should go perhaps more paleo. There's the Wall Protocol. W-A-H-L. The Wall that Protocol. Terry? That's Terry Wall. W-A-H-L. Um, there is, um, I think it's Paleo FX by... Dr. Jack Cruz, that's um, a worthwhile read. I think that's a really good start for people because mm. I don't want to overwhelm them. But Lauren Cordain is was the first that came up with this. You know, there's a, um, there is one that's free on the internet that's worth reading and it's called Grain Man's Double-Edged Sword. <sighs> so it's, it's about, and I think that's by Lauren Cordain as well, and that was one of his first ones that he wrote back in the eighties, maybe maybe nineties. I can't I can't remember when he wrote it. But what it does is it says yes, it gave us um, what we have today, but it's now causing these problems. Because when you look at the hunter gatherer, apparently they were quite tall, and when the agriculturists came in, they got shorter. But so like the wheat. Because the, we became hybridized. Yeah, we became hybridized and dwarfed. <laughs> because that's what the new wheat's called is dwarf. Uh, but it's worth reading that mm. because he talks about iron and zinc and um, all the deficiencies we see today are a result of eating these grains. So, you know, it's almost like start with the elimination. You know, start as the what the hunter-gatherer may have eaten that we know it, like an average diet. Then as you become more robust... Try and enter other things into your diet, such as fermented dairy. So for me, I've you know I've been um, very grain free, uh, occasional quinoa, occasional millet, but very grain free for probably three years. And I realise that my robustness is coming back because when I do eat quinoa and I do eat these foods, I don't. They don't seem to create an inflammatory response. I don't seem to have a problem with them. 
And the other thing that I've entered is fermented dairy. So I went off dairy for quite a while, but I'm now back on fermented dairy and I'm far better on fermented dairy. I feel better. Um, I, I, my digestive system is so much better. When I was on just nuts, remember nuts were only a winter food. They were not a summer food. And I was eating nuts all year round. So I've stopped eating nuts. In I only eat them in the winter and I, I always have them with sh- like shelled. So this is, remember, I've been doing this for years. I don't expect people to live like me. I give you ideas in the books and ways to change uh, and then you can start to move to this way if you want where you are eating seasonally, you are only having nuts at a certain time of the year and you shell them. You And you, I'm not making cakes because I don't have kids around anymore. I don't I don't need to do that anymore. So we, we eat a very basic diet. We eat lots of broths and um, and things like that. So once you've done that, that elimination, then wait a while, and it could be 18 months. You know, Dr. Jack Cruz says 18 months sometimes it takes the body to heal. So then start introducing foods back in. So some legumes do a hummus or... Um, peanut butter. You know, well, that's, yeah, exactly, because peanuts are a legume. Mm. So start introducing these foods back in because we need to be robust. Mm. What if we got to a point in, in this world where no meat is available to us mm. and we have to live on grains? Mm. We want to be able to survive that. Mm. So I look at let's make sure we don't become... Too extreme? Yeah, too extreme, mm. and that we do become more robust. And the more robust we become, the more variety we can eat. Oh, I think it's beautiful. And I do would like to add then that the paleo show by mm. with Dr. Brett Hill mm. um, on the Wellness Couch is a fantastic weekly show. And I know their first, I think their first eight shows were very basic in the principles of paleo. So even oh. when you start off with that, that show, and it's been a while since I listened to those first shows, but I do remember when I heard them, it was when paleo started to become very big. And they explained things very simply and very... Mm very cleverly and very well and and Brett is our beautiful caveman he is a caveman um, he is he's, he's so a caveman he is the extreme um like Lawrence yeah, Lawrence <laughs> imagine Lawrence without hairspray um or shoes <laughs> or shoes um <laughs> is there any other podcasts that you'd recommend on the paleo wave look there's um there's quite a few podcasts in the US Sean, Croxton oh, has a yeah, lot sure. of topics. Mm. Uh, the Underground Wellness Podcast has got some fantastic... You only mm. have to Google paleo yeah. under yeah. podcasts and you'll find a plethora of them. So you might as well just look, go I think, a look. I actually think um, Perlmutter, oh, yeah. yeah, he's really good. Grain Brain is his book. I think Perlmutter uh, really gives a convincing argument as to what the brain needs and it doesn't need um, a lot of carbs, he believes. Um, it does need some, but he believes that we're overtaxing it with the carbs. Um, and Wheat Belly by Dr. William Davis. They're two really good books to help understand why grain has become a problem. And um, and and Perlmutter talks about the grain as well. So, mm. But as far as podcasts go, I look, I do download a couple of them, but I've stopped listening to them. And Anthony Coppola, I really like him. Uh, you'd have to look him up. I forget the name of his show, but he's um, an amazing guy to listen to. And there's a, a That's Paleo, I think, is a show. Mm. And there's another guy by the name of Abel James. I only listen to him for his voice, actually. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard his voice? Yes, he's quite tasty. Oh, yes, he's quite, quite, quite <laughs> a gorgeous voice. 
Um, and I, I believe there's a couple of summits on paleo. Mm-hmm. So it's about becoming informed, educated. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that's free. Yeah, a lot of it's free, mm-hmm. you know, and this is free. You mm-hmm. know, you've got a whole thing on where to go, what to do, what are the basics, where do we think you should start, where do you go, what's the elimination, where do you get these things. So, yeah. I think in summary what I've got from you is paleo or primal or any of those, you know, it's it's going back to how our evolutionary bodies evolved. It's looking at things with a philosophy, not just because it's a fad or a movement. It's trying to have relationships with the people where we get our food from. Mm-hmm. It's looking beyond even the paleo foods that's considered part of the diet. It's actually looking at circadian rhythms. It's looking at sleep. It's looking at um, electromagnetic radiation, bringing things in like salt lamps, vaporizers, using your essential oils more to help eradicate it, increase your high antioxidant foods. So that's why the green foods are so perfect if we do live in a city and things like that. Maybe even simple something as simple as growing your own herbs is enough yeah. on your porch if you live yeah. in a city. Just even cutting and going through the principle of growing your own herbs and seeing them flourish on your balcony or in mm. your backyard is probably the basis of paleolithic lifestyle. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's actually honouring the value of something growing from seed into flourishing fruiting and then actually you know harvesting and gathering mm. your fruits. I know a number of our friends even in the city here, they have chickens. Um, so, you know, having things like that. The beautiful also, Jessica Ains yeah, and her chooks. She's so cute, even though she's scared of them. Yeah, um, <laughs> she's so funny. But think, isn't it? It's, it's a mm. principle, it's a philosophy, it's mm. values, and it's honouring nature in all her glory. So on that note... I think without our beautiful Karen, we've seemed to manage to get through talking broths and meat and all sorts of things quite easily. Um, she's probably, although I do really miss her, and I think our listeners miss her too because she always adds add such another dimension. So, in if you do have any questions, please place them on our Facebook page. Go to all the W's, facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. Put any comments or questions there that you might have for Karen around this or any of us. Um, you can also find us on the wellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. Please go to iTunes, download us, tell us, share us with everybody that you know that you think could, you know, we don't think we know it all by any means, but of course we've tried to provide as much information that we're learning. I think Cindy is probably one of the best researchers in the country, so I always feel very blessed to know that she is probably on the cutting edge of, of research as far as food and nutrition goes. So if all else fails, just do what I do. Ask Cindy. Um, and, and please join us next week um, on Up for a Chat and be part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. We'll see you on the ride. Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. 2015 marks perhaps the most important event the Wellness Couch has ever conducted. We've had two sold-out wellness summits these last years, but honestly, nothing will come close to our first ever wellness breakthrough. Your favourite wellness couch experts, the Up For A Chat girls, Quirky Cookies Joe Whitten, Stu Hayes, Marcus Pierce, and of course the wellness guys are all gathering in Dandong Ranges for three days and two nights for one incredible event. If you want possibly the greatest peer group in health and wellness to help you catapult your life to the next level, then we'd love to see you at the Wellness Breakthrough in February. For more information, go to www.thewellnesscouch.com. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.